Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Jesse Munton, a lecturer in philosophy at St. John's College, Cambridge. There's an unusual amount of actual philosophy in here, but everything should be accessible. Okay, so bias and prejudice are unavoidably important topics, so it's worthwhile to spend some time thinking about the forms these things can plausibly take. Now, some beliefs can be prejudiced to the extent that they're just false, and behaviours or attitudes can be prejudiced to the extent that they're straightforwardly harmful or malicious towards certain groups of people. But clearly, that is not the end of the story. And Jesse has recently been writing about the other forms prejudice might take beyond inaccuracy and malign intentions. Firstly, we discuss how there can be something epistemically wrong with the way that we use even accurate statistical generalisations about demographic groups. Something I found interesting here was the idea of projectability, so whether a statistic can be expected to hold in different circumstances or possible worlds. Then we hear about prejudice construed as undue salience, that is, when certain bits of information are more or less accessible than others, whether or not that information is accurate. And finally, we think about how all this might apply to search engines and the way in which they generate and rank results. So without further ado, here's the interview. Um, so my name's Jesse Munton, and uh, I'm a lecturer in the philosophy department at Cambridge University. I did my PhD in philosophy at Yale and I was a postdoc in um, at NYU for a year. So I lived in the States for seven years in total. And um, before that, I thought I might be a lawyer. And before that, I did an undergraduate degree in classics and philosophy. Now, a lot of your uh, work looks at bias and prejudice nowadays. Uh, I was wondering, can you just give us an impression of the kinds of questions philosophers are interested in when they talk about things like bias? I guess a big question that philosophers are interested in is what constitutes a bias? When is a bias problematic? And when might it be a feature of, for instance, scientific methodology that actually can enhance accuracy um, or the utility of the results that you arrive at? I think also philosophers are interested in more specific questions that might relate that kind of general category of bias to more specific forms of prejudice. Um, so there's a lot of work as well on things like what is racism? What is sexism? What does it take for somebody to have that kind of an attitude? Is that uh, always something that is an epistemic problem? Um, is it always something that involves dislike or um negative behaviour towards the group in question, so um, those kinds of things. We're going to be talking about prejudice for the most part. Um, I was wondering now, though, if you could just tease apart bias from prejudice. Is there some kind of recognised distinction there? I think of prejudice as a more explicitly valence category. So prejudice, I think, is a term that we use when we're saying that something is out of line or out of order in some way. And I think that we tend to think of prejudice as not just something that maybe involves a degree of irrationality or an inappropriate sort of approach to weighing your evidence in the way that a uh, a bias might mean in a more technical sense. I think we often think of prejudice as involving some emotion of dislike in some way um, or other. Okay, so the thought is I could have um, accurate beliefs formed through more or less rational processes, 
but there's still space for me to be prejudiced through these other channels, like having negative attitudes. Is that the thought? Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, or I guess, um, I guess part of what I was trying to get at is maybe the distinction between the two is how you identify the problematic attitude in the first place. So it feels like when we pick up on the fact that somebody is prejudiced, often we're picking up on the fact that we suspect they have a dislike of a group of in question or that they're behaving towards them in some way that's um, impermissible. Uh, I think sometimes we use bias in a more technical way that doesn't involve those additional features. But I think all this is really up for grabs and it's extremely messy. So I don't actually think that that this is going to be, these are the kinds of categories or the kinds of concepts which we can come up with a neat conceptual analysis of. I think it's definitely a case of a sort of rough family resemblance. And actually part of what's interesting about this to me is I think our sense of these categories and where boundaries lie between them or what counts as an instance of a specific prejudice like racism or sexism is really in flux at the moment um, for, for several reasons. And that makes it interesting to, to be engaging with this topic at the moment and thinking about the ways in which um, our intuitive use of these categories is changing. Um, one question I wanted to ask as well was how you got onto this topic of, of bias and prejudice. So you mentioned um, having this, uh, initially thinking of maybe becoming a lawyer. Um, what was it about this this topic that, that drew you to it? So it's funny because actually I started off and I still do a lot of philosophy of perception. And in some ways, I think of myself as somebody who primarily does philosophy of perception. And when I was doing my PhD, my advisor, Jason Stanley, would say to me, you work on ideology. And I was very resistant to this idea and would say, I don't work on ideology. I work on philosophy of perception. You work on ideology. But actually, Jason was completely right. And I do work on (laughs) ideology in some sense. So um, the two might seem unrelated, but actually, uh, they really sort of fit together for me. So the thing that really interested me in philosophy of perception was this tension between how we encounter our perceptual experience naively as something that just puts us immediately in contact with the world and the way the world is quite simply. And then reading a load of um, sort of work in vision science and cognitive psychology on the the processes that actually underlie visual processing. And the kind of dominant model at the moment in um, sort of cognitive psychology really emphasizes the way in which actually your visual experience is this process by which you're trying to figure out what is out there in your environment on the basis of this retinal stimulation, which really underdetermines the result that you get. And so your perceptual processing is starting from this position of uncertainty all the time. And yet the result you get is something that feels so clear and straightforward and sort of that really puts you just in contact with how the world is. And so the way that your visual system is solving for that partly is to draw on past information that it's encountered all the time to try to plug this gap between what your retinal input is telling you at a moment about how the world is and, you know, you kind of figuring out what that actually means for what's in your environment. And so I was interested in cases where it seems like your visual system is doing that to the absolute best of its ability, but the results are something that looks like a kind of bias or prejudice because the sample that it's been fed is in some ways skewed. And so that fed really naturally to thinking about how we're positioned more generally in the world, which is that we're always starting from this position of uncertainty. We're always having to draw on information that we've gathered in the past in order to figure out how the world actually is at the moment. 
Um, and that information that we've been fed in the past is always some imperfect subset of the available information that we could have. And so both sort of us as epistemic agents more holistically and our visual systems are grappling with this problem of solving this uncertainty or this kind of indeterminacy um, and so that's what got me into then from kind of thinking about well how should we evaluate that sub-personal perceptual processing to thinking about how should we evaluate um, ourselves more generally when we're dealing with this problem in ways that lead to what look like biases and prejudices but which can feel like we're doing the absolute best we can in the circumstances. So one follow-up question that I have on this is to what degree prejudice or irrationality of this visual perception is in fact an adaptation? I think one often excited example is that we tend to perceive things as more risky than they are, and that that could in fact originate from evolution thousands of years ago when we were surviving in the wild. So for example, if we hear a rustle in the bushes, it is better to think that there is a line there because the downside of going, oh, don't worry, it's just the wind and being wrong is so much larger than thinking it is a lion and there being nothing there. Um, hence, back then, the best response may have, in fact, been to perceive things as overly risky. And this still carries over to our behavior today, even if there's no longer a clear benefit. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's important to tease two things apart here. So you might want a system that builds in exactly what is in some sense a bias, but that is absolutely optimally promoting the survival of the species in some ways. Um, but we can also think about this. So, so that might feel like it's kind of a, an instance of practical rationality in some way. But there are also cases where it might feel like we're trying to optimise not just survival, but um, the extent to which you gain true beliefs about your environment or accurate beliefs about your environment. And that, too, it might seem like, well, the, the best way for you to do that is to integrate new and old information in particular ways. But that leaves you very vulnerable to the ways in which you've gone about gathering old information, for instance. Just to linger on visual perception for a bit before we dive into prejudice proper, I'm just curious, are there any like particularly neat concrete examples which show this thought that we're like inferring what's out there in real time rather than having it just delivered to us? I think that some visual illusions are nice examples of this process happening and can really bring you up short sometimes. Uh, so some of the ones that I found most convincing are the ways in which you can devise these visual illusions for colour and shading. So if you create an image that makes it look as though part of it is in shading, you really judge the colour of the part that is shaded very differently than if you block out those bits of the image that are making you think that it's shaded or making your visual system behave as though it's in shade in some way. And suddenly the colour of the thing that you're seeing really changes before your eyes. Um, and you can also get similar illusions like this with shape. So there's an illusion called the turning tables illusion, where there are two tabletops, which are, you know, the, the space they take up on the piece of paper is in fact the same, but it's really, really hard to see them as the same size because of the way in which they're angled and because your visual system is assuming that you're looking at a kind of 3d world it mistakes that um sort of what it's seeing on the on, on the page as it were and so I, often 
these illusions that we can construct are nice moments where we're kind of brought up against the ways in which there's this process of calculation that's going on behind the visual experience that you're having. Yeah, and we'll put that in the write-up because some of them just are crazy and impossible to reverse, right? So you mentioned this colour illusion. So, you know, you, you get a picture of a plate of strawberries and then you kind of cast over like a, a blue type shade so that each pixel is, is more or less blue or grey. But the strawberries still look red somehow. So there's, there's an example of where maybe kind of beliefs about the context of the image um, kind of feed back and make the strawberries look red. Yeah. Th- yeah. So there's, and there's a bunch of like quite subtle experimental evidence on the possible impact of your kind of priors about what colour things are on how you actually perceive them to be. But I'm hesitant to endorse anything that says that your cognitive beliefs can go right back and influence your visual perceptual processing directly, because I also think there's a bunch of good evidence that that visual perceptual processing is modular to some degree. So the points at which I think you might have cognitive influence I'm more persuaded of are this process by which you're selecting your information. So what you're attending to all the time is going to be obviously influenced by your beliefs. And then your kind of post-perceptual processing is also going to be open to influence from cognition in various ways. But some of this process of kind of bias coming in, it can just be internal to the visual system. So we know that you have these kind of perceptual priors and that they're modified by learning. So if you expose people to a particular sort of subset of visual stimuli repeatedly, it's going to modify how they're it's seeing their environment. Um, but, but that means that you're vulnerable to distortions entering in through um, other sort of, in, in quotes, natural distortions that arise in that sample set that you've seen. Just to be clear, so when you say that the visual system is modular, this is the idea that it's a kind of locked one-way machine. You can't get in there and alter the way it behaves with with kind of higher-up beliefs. So even if I believe that the every pixel on this image of the plate of strawberries is either blue or grey, that actually can't change the fact that I just see it as red. Um, yeah, exactly. So so the idea that the, the that visual processing is modular would mean that you can kind of tinker with what you put in and you can tinker with the outputs, but that there's some part of that process that is encapsulated that can't be uh, influenced by information from outside of that visual module. Got it. Let's talk specifically about prejudice now then. So we're going to talk about two forms that prejudice might plausibly take beyond what we normally think about when we think about prejudice which I guess are things like um, the accuracy of our beliefs or otherwise uh, our attitudes towards other people or behaviour towards other people. And the first example involves a feature of generalisations about demographic groups that you've called projectability. So obviously a belief can be prejudicial if it's just wrong, right? If it's inaccurate. So when you have a false belief about a demographic group, for instance... But what could possibly be wrong with my holding and using true beliefs here? Yeah, so I'm particularly interested in this question in relation to statistics and statistics about demographic groups. Statistics are really interesting for the way in which they reassure us with an impression of objectivity. And then there's a long history of people critiquing the ways that that veneer of objectivity allows them to be used in ways that can actually be 
highly problematic and that can further prejudice in some ways, even as it can seem as though presenting something that is the result of a good research methodology ought to be a counter to prejudice in that way. So I think one of the best examples of this um, really comes out in Khalil Mohammed's book, The Condemnation of Blackness. And he looks at the ways in which um, sort of the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century, there's this kind of blooming of a race science that purports to approach questions of race and racial difference with these new tools of kind of objective statistical analysis. And right from the off, in a way that is critiqued at the time by theorists like Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, that is used in ways that have the result of being highly prejudicial and oppressive. So, for instance, there's a lot of early work associating um, blackness and criminality. And Khalil Mohammed talks of this in terms of kind of writing crime into race, that you get this association between the two. And that that is then used in oppressive ways sort of right throughout the 20th century as a way of justifying discriminatory treatment of um, African-American populations in America. And I think it's not hard to see very similar processes happening out, outside of America as well. So that's one of the ways in which you can kind of take a statistic that associates a particular demographic group with a negative characteristic, and then you can use it in ways that have hugely problematic upshots, even as the statistic itself is, you know, we can suppose somewhat unimpeachable, though, of course, there's a bunch of questions to do with um, statistical methodology that are also really interesting, um, but, that, but that I steer away from. So it is the case that you can use and abuse uh, objectively true statistics or facts in a way which is morally objectionable. But it seems like that's a problem with the things you do with those beliefs. So maybe another question is, can there be anything not morally, but epistemically flawed about accurate statistical beliefs? Yeah, so I want to say that there can be, but that to find where that flaw is, we need to look beyond accuracy per se, or at least accuracy relative to a particular population in the actual world. So part of what got me interested in this question is that there's been a bunch of really interesting work in philosophy recently on questions of um, what gets called moral encroachment. So suppose we have epistemic standards like uh, justification or knowledge. Uh, the claim is sometimes made that how we apply those standards is sensitive to the moral stakes of holding a particular belief in some way or other. So that might mean that suppose you're trying to form a belief about a population of dung beetles, say, and you're observing their behaviour, that the standard your evidence has to meet in order for your belief about that population to be justified or to constitute knowledge is lower than when you are forming that belief about a uh, population of humans. Because in the latter case, we know that there are all sorts of things at stake in terms of how you then end up treating people on the basis of that statistic. So I think there's a lot to be said for, for that work. Um, but part of me felt uncomfortable with the way in which it can feel as though that almost lets us off the hook epistemically in some way. It can feel as though we're saying, well, obviously there can't be epistemic any, any sort of epistemic problem here if you've got an accurate statistic. So we've got to look to something like the moral stakes of holding that belief in order to explain what's going wrong when people are using these statistics. And I think there's actually something more 
basic and more sort of purely epistemic that can go wrong in these cases. And that to see it, we need to distinguish between the accuracy of a statistic and what I call its projectability. So a statistic is projectable when you can kind of reliably extend it to a new member of um, the sort of the, the class in question. And so whether or not you can extend a statistic in that way depends on sort of how I talk about this in terms of how modally robust that statistic is, what its um, sort of modal profile is. So suppose you have a statistic that is um, sort of dependent on very contingent features of how the actual world happens to be, then it may be that if you take some somebody or something that is a member of the relevant class over which it holds, you are nonetheless not in a strong position to extend that statistic to that member because of the kind of the modal fragility of that statistic, that it depends on these other interventions, um, these other contingencies holding in order for it to be the case. And you aren't in a position to know as you extend it to the new member that those relevant contingencies and manipulations are going to continue to hold in that new case. Could, could you um, maybe give an example um, of, of that? Because I think that would help me um, like understand this more and more concretely. So a couple of examples that I draw on, which are in some ways silly examples, but I think they help to make the point. Uh, so one involves Dalmatians. So it is a true statistic, but a very high proportion of Dalmatians in the UK, let's say, are infertile. And so, you know, suppose your friend gets a Dalmatian puppy and they call you up and they're like, well, do you think I should get it? spade and you think about it and you say well you know I'm a rational kind of a person what I'm going to do is check the statistics on how likely it is that this Dalmatian is fertile and so you you look up you know rates of fertility among Dalmatians and it turns out that they're really low and so you say to your friend look I wouldn't bother it's going to be expensive it might cause the Dalmatian some distress like it's really unlikely to be infertile anyway so I wouldn't worry about it now in some sense what you're doing there should be fine you've got a statistic that holds of Dalmatians in the UK you've got a new member of the class and so you're naturally kind of projecting it onto it and then you're reasoning on that basis but in another way it's obviously a really silly thing to have done because there's a reason why Dalmatians in the UK are um, infertile. It's because we spay them, because humans subject them to particular conventions of care. And that has the result of producing this regularity among the Dalmatian population. So when you're thinking about projecting that statistic onto a new instance, you have to be thinking about well, why does that statistic hold in the first place? And are those contingencies going to be in place when I think about this new member? Is it really true that this new member of the class has a very low chance of being fertile. That's super interesting. And I, I feel to me, this kind of seems as well, um, again, just kind of trying to to relate this to, to economics uh, and, and that kind of side as well of like trying to tease out correlations with causation. I don't know if that's like too crude to put it that way, but like uh, when it comes to this statistic of saying, okay, does Dalmatian cause infertility or is there somewhere in between, right? Um, something else maybe outside that the statistic, especially if it's a very simple statistic is causing and linking it back to your previous example with, with race as well. Uh, it might not be that blackness causes crimes. It is uh, all of those other like social and institutional factors as well that get missed if uh, if we rely on on these very simple or, or more narrow arguments. Yes, exactly. And I I think that part of what happens here is that just how we're naturally inclined to think is to essentialize in some ways and to try to extrapolate from anything that we observe to some kind of 
deeper reason for that regularity and that it's very easy for us to go wrong in the process of doing that in a way that means that our belief about a statistic is flawed in some important way, even as the statistic itself may be, may be accurate. Um, I guess on that point as well, in the social sciences, there is this idea of generalizability, right? So if I'm, you know, doing a, um, an experiment in social psychology and um, necessarily I'm going to take a fairly kind of narrow sample, typically it might just be like a bunch of undergrads at the university I happen to be at, right? And one thing I can ask about the, the result I get is whether or not it's going to generalize to um, broader populations. So maybe the country I live in um, is your notion of projectability distinct from this idea of generalizability? Yeah, good, good, exactly. So, so the two are definitely closely related. I think projectability goes a bit further because it says that when we're doing this kind of thinking, we can't sort of just limit ourselves to the actual world, but we also need to think about other possible worlds and how these populations behave in other possible worlds, um, including, I think we, this is, I think, just an interesting feature of our thinking that we tend to think that um, sort of morally better worlds are more relevant in some ways. And I kind of share that, you might call it a bias, and I'm not completely sure sure why. But it seems like when it comes to us sort of understanding the nature of these demographic categories, it's really important that we don't just limit ourselves to the actual world, but we kind of think beyond that to other ways the world could be and how these populations would behave in that way, because often our reasoning is implicitly assuming that kind of modal generality, even when it's not there. Yeah. Can I just um, pick up on what you said about morally better worlds? I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. I suppose I suppose what I mean is like... Um, Suppose you're thinking about women and mathematical ability and you have a statistic, which I think is true that in more developed countries, teenage girls underperform their male counterparts when it comes to their abilities at maths. Now, if I'm going to reason from that statistic to either a particular sort of inference about the mathematical ability of an individual girl in the future, or maybe just sort of thinking about women's mathematical ability more generally, it seems to me like, well, I need to be thinking about need to dig in a bit why this statistic holds. And I think we don't fully know the answer. And perhaps there's something genetic in there. Perhaps there's quite a lot in there that's to do with the ways in which we encourage girls and boys towards different activities and support their endeavours in them. Part of what I'm thinking there is I would really like to know if I suppose a kind of perfectly just world in which, you know, girls and boys have perfectly equal access to opportunities. What would math ability look like in that world? intuitively I tend to think that horribly unjust worlds worlds that are even worse than ours where women are you know oppressed in such a way that they don't even get a look in at maths that's not going to tell me so much about it um and yeah but I I don't know how legitimate an intuition is sometimes I'm skeptical of the ways in which I think that's kind of guiding my thinking about these questions yeah I think it's super interesting to think about that difference between projectability and generalizability so the idea of generalizability in statistics is quite straightforward to define and then quite straightforward to evaluate as well. I mean, one way to find out if a result generalizes is just to go out and look at more people from well outside your original sample. But when we start thinking out loud about whether a statistic might hold in other possible or counterfactual worlds, I guess it's very easy to lose your claim to anything like objectivity. Um, but as you say, at least a lot of the time, questions about projectability 
seem to be at least as important as generalizability. They're just annoyingly hard to get such an objective handle on. Is that right? Yes. So I, th- I think that's completely right. And and one thing you might want to say is, look, what is the relevant standard here? Like, when is it projectable? My answer at the moment would be that it partly depends on the particular projection that you're trying to accomplish. But I think it's legitimate to feel like, well, that, that's, a, that's a pretty vague standard. Like, what is good scientific um, practice in this case? But the point I would make in reply is that we're doing this all the time already. So we're already making a load of assumptions about projectability and when it is legitimate to project that statistic forward. And so what this is really doing, I guess, is hauling them out into the light a bit more. And if once that's done, it turns out that there is no value-free way of making that decision or setting that standard, then better that we see that with clear eyes for what it is and appreciate, you know, yet another way in which values and subjective decisions are always featuring in our scientific methodology than that we kind of keep that under the table. Yeah, I guess an obvious way of seeing that is just the fact that lots of social scientists, I guess economists in particular, have lots of seats at the table when it comes to making policy decisions and recommendations. But in order to go from observe statistic to here's what we should do in light of it that sounds a lot like reasoning about counterfactuals right in other words projecting a statistic rather than generalizing it yeah exactly so that's that's already going on all the time because you're thinking about counterfactual worlds when you think well how is this intervention going to change things what's the scope for it to change things so yeah i I think it's helpful in terms of policymakers, and it would also be nice if people who kind of comment below the line on articles on the internet were more au fait with this as well (laughs) Interesting. Um, yeah, so okay, I guess something else to talk about, right, is that people don't generalise or project from all statistics. So, like, um, there's a pot of pens on my desk right now, and all the pens are blue, um, but I don't project from that fact that um, the next pen I put in the pot is going to be blue. And maybe one reason um, I don't do that is because I have um, other beliefs about the kind of pens I put in that pot, none of which involve them being necessarily blue. Um, And on the other hand, people do tend to draw sometimes contradictory uh, generalisations from the very same statistics, right? Um, And that's important when the statistics aren't about pens, but are about like demographic groups and things we care about. Um, But, right, it seems to me that the problem with drawing objectionable conclusions from accurate statistics um, isn't so much in the statistics themselves or the beliefs about those statistics, but it's kind of elsewhere. It's it's our other beliefs about what might make certain counterfactuals true. So we have these all these kind of implicit beliefs. We have ideas about causal or explanatory mechanisms which make certain statistics true and whatever else. So Why should we think that the problem is with the beliefs themselves about the statistics rather than this bundle of other beliefs we have in the background? Yeah, this is a really good question that I've thought about a lot. And I think it ultimately comes down to questions of how you want to individuate your beliefs. So there certainly is an option where you individuate your beliefs kind of very narrowly and you say look the the only thing I believe when I believe a statistic is you know kind of this sort of 
sentence in the language of thought that articulates that particular statistic and you know that that's the end of it if you're thinking of it like that then um well I think there's a couple of problems with going that way one is that then the relevant beliefs become inferentially inert because anytime you actually want to reason with them or you know draw some more interesting conclusion about a particular individual from it you're at that stage then coupling it with all that kind of additional content about you know it's kind of modal generality or the extent to which it's legitimate to move it on to this other instance or how exactly you're construing the population in question in a way that maybe isn't explicitly articulated in the kind of the, the sort of form of the statistical belief itself um so, so that's one reason for not really liking that option is I feel like, no, look, the, the thing you have when you have a statistical belief is inferentially powerful. And if it's inferentially powerful in the sense that it kind of puts you in a position to draw these other inferences, that's because it has a load of implicit content that's kind of packed in there with it. So I think of the belief as kind of like an iceberg. And the tip of it is what you would kind of describe with the statistic itself. And then underneath the water is this more, this like this whole web of beliefs really, which is what it takes to fully specify um, um, the, the kind of content that you'll actually reason from. The other reason for preparing this kind of richer construal of the statistical belief is I, I think it's I think it's accurate. Like, I mean, I think it sort of describes what people do when they have a belief. So, for instance, your belief about the pens on your desk, which can seem like, look, I've just got a belief about a load of pens in this pot. Like, I don't have to be thinking anything else. But actually, I think you do have loads of other kind of content built in to that, you know, if you frame it as a statistical belief about the pens in your pots, that mean that you're not going to sort of reason unreasonably from it and begin to think that any time you put a pen in that pot, it turns out blue um that's because i think your kind of history of, of how the pen's got to be there is is kind of built in to what it is that you actually believe when you when you have that statistic in mind yeah i think that makes sense um i know i think it would be good to bring all of this home to another example so you talked about dalmatians but what about people yeah yeah exactly so so how does this then extend to kind of explain our unease about some statistics about demographic categories the thought is that um you know we, we take a population like dalmatians and we're always subjecting them to these kind of manipulations similarly demographic categories are sort of deeply unstable and socially created and so we really need any time that we're thinking about statistics that associate for instance um, you know, race and criminality, gender and academic performance. Um, we really need to be thinking about the sort of context in which those statistics have arisen and the kinds of interventions which could be affecting their stability. So it's a bit like um, so we recently bought a house and we've had a problem with our we've had a problem with our floor. And so we've had to take some part of it up and the builder was explaining to me what the problem is. And he was saying, you haven't got a stable subfloor. What you've got to do is sort of strip it out, put a stable subfloor in and then your flooring will be fine. I think any time we're thinking about demographic statistics, you never have a stable subfloor because those categories themselves are shifting and changing and the properties that are associated with them change depending on the ways in which um, you know, society treats people differently. And so we need to engage with that instability as we think about it, as we sort of use these statistics about, about those groups. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, and this might be a, a kind of a, a different take on it as well, but 
um, related to what you mentioned about generalizability and, and the like is to what degree statistics focuses on averages, which might not be there. So the example that pops to my mind was when the US Air Force, I think back in the, the 20s or, or 50s, was designing the, the perfect cockpit uh, to be used for, for pilots. They looked at the average height, uh, the uh, average uh, thumb length or whatever to design the, the perfect uh, cockpit. But then that ended up not serving anyone. And, um, you know, if, if you design for the average, you can miss out on a lot of this, this heterogeneity and like nuances and complexities as well, which I think actually to a large degree might not be the fault of, of researchers themselves. I think they're often very good at kind of highlighting those, those nuances and um, heterogeneity. But especially when it comes to discourse, um, there is a real danger in, in relying on just kind of simple averages or one statistic that then generalizes to a, to a whole population or, or demographic. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, and the, the I'm quite interested in the reference class problem, for, you know, slightly outside of philosophy of how you figure out what the relevant reference class is when you're trying to apply a statistic. One of the things that's really puzzling about statistics is um, it can feel as though the class you're dealing with disappears between your fingers as soon as you try and make that application subtler in some way so so what i mean by that for instance is um so suppose you're interested in statistics that associate higher rates of psychosis and schizophrenia with um being black in america so that's like a fairly sort of well-founded statistic and probably part of it is to do with practices of diagnosis but there's also some interesting research i think some of it comes out of deirdre angling's lab uh, at, at ccny that looks at the ways in which it may be that living, growing up in a society as a minority that is discriminated against is really fundamentally psychologically stressful in a way that can be really disruptive to, to your cognition at some basic level. So that means, for instance, that if you have some statistic that predicts the likelihood that a black person in America is going to manifest symptoms of schizophrenia or psychosis it maybe isn't going to extend to um, an individual who has just stepped off the plane from a country in which they haven't been a racial minority until now because they're not going to have the relevant history so then you think okay well we can particularize our statistic we can circumscribe that reference class a little more closely so that we're not just talking about black people in america but we're talking about black people who've got the relevant history of growing up in some particular area in america but then take one of those individuals and try and calculate their particular risk. And it's going to get more specific again, because they're going to have a whole bunch of other familial or sort of social factors, which mean that the risk is higher or lower for them in particular. And so it, it's this strange phenomenon of the better your statistics get, in some ways, the more useless they get, because they end up applying just to one particular individual. And then you're trying to calculate the rates for that individual on the basis of those rates for the group as a whole. And yet the group as a whole has kind of disappeared before your eyes. It's kind of making me um, wonder, you talked about um, trying to get a hold of like a stable floor from which you can start thinking about counterfactuals. And um, there are like pretty robust ways of identifying um, causal mechanisms at the margin, uh, where, for instance, you might find a way of like really reliably reducing crime, given some like wonky intervention. Um, and that's fine, but that's set against like a really enormous background of contextual factors, which makes that causal thing true. And I'm wondering if the like kind of toolkit for identifying 
causes in the social sciences and economics are maybe in this sense like uh, a bit too marginal and a bit too wonky because they don't extend to thinking about these like bigger counterfactuals when we're thinking about a whole lot of things changing at once does that make sense I think it's interesting, though, because I think what, what you're getting at, Finn, is it's true that, like, you know, when it comes to, like, doing a randomized control trial, you can say, OK, what happens if we have, you know, 100 more police officers on the street, but you can't really do, OK, what if we don't have a history or an institution of, uh, you know, racism and, and slavery and the like? Um, you just can't do those experiments. So then you can never get those statistics, which means it's much harder to, to quantify or make, I guess, a, a data-driven uh case for these things yeah yeah all right let's let's move on then that was one um kind of prejudice that you've suggested uh statistical beliefs might take on uh another one you suggested involves um this idea of undue salience and the ordering of information so just to kick off can you maybe explain what you mean by the ordering of information and maybe um, an example? Yeah. So I'm interested in ways in which you can take an individual who has a bunch of beliefs and you might say, oh, these beliefs all look fine. They're rationally formed. Um, they're all kind of accurate. But it can still seem to me that, that, that there are ways in which those can manifest prejudice through the ways in which you might prioritise some of them or really kind of um, perseverate on or value them more than others. So what I mean is, um, it, it, it's here's an example of what I mean. So as a parent, when you think about your kids, it's often possible to be quite clear-eyed about their flaws and failings. And maybe I'll be, um, you know, having a conversation with somebody about my kids and I can bring to mind the ways in which I worry about them or how they're going to fare at school say given their disinclination to share with other children or something but in general the conversation just has this gravity back towards their more positive characteristics at some point you know one one returns to reflecting on the ways in which you know they do I don't know lovely drawings or tell amusing jokes or something and I think that's part of what it is to love your child is if you think of your beliefs about them as kind of in this big beaker floating around in there, the negatively valence beliefs are just a bit lower down and the positively valence beliefs are just a bit higher up. And so it's so when you kind of reach for a belief, the positively valence ones are at the top, they're easier for you to reach, they're more accessible in some ways. And so my thought is that kind of ordering on beliefs but not just your beliefs also information maybe we'll come more to this in a moment information maybe you don't yet have like how accessible that is to you is part of um what can make somebody prejudiced towards a particular a particular group so for instance that might manifest in a whole range of ways i think but one of the ways in which it might manifest is that it might be particularly hard for you to access information about a group at all because you just don't bother to form beliefs about them because information in your environment to do with them is just less salient to you it doesn't kind of jump out to you you don't attend to it you don't bother to add it to your belief set um, another way it might manifest for instance is suppose you have some reasonably balanced belief set about a demographic group um, like maybe let's say um, Muslims in Britain maybe you know a load of stuff about 
that's positive about them and you know a load of stuff that's negative um but if it's always the negative beliefs that spring to mind if maybe you spend a lot of time perseverating on them and just kind of calling them calling them up again and again then that is a form of prejudice even if it doesn't manifest in terms of your belief set being inaccurate or those beliefs individually being formed irrationally yeah um do we know anything about like what goes on in people's heads when they find certain parts of the world more or beliefs more salient than others yeah so i so i should go back a little bit when i'm using this term salience i'm appealing to something that has a kind of history of research behind it in a load of different areas but what's particularly relevant for me i guess are a couple of areas one is its use in sort of vision science and the other is its use in sort of cognitive psychology more more generally um, and particularly psychopathology so something is salient when it's inclined to grab your attention sometimes that can be in virtue of really low level features so something can be visually salient to you um, because it kind of uh, jumps out and grabs your attention because there's some contrast between it and its environment. So if you see a black cat in a field of snow, that's going to be visually salient to you. But salience is also driven by your habits. It's driven by your interests. So if you're a really passionate Manchester United supporter, then if you walk past a shop and there's some Manchester United jersey in the window, that's really going to maybe jump out to you more than it would somebody else who doesn't support them. If you're very anxious about something, then information that's to do with that topic is going to jump out and be more salient to you. That's going to be implemented in a bunch of different ways, depending on the particular form of salience that you're dealing with. So people posit, for instance, that visually you build up a kind of visual salience map of your environment. Um, And so you're sort of, as, as well as tracking the actual visual properties that things have, you're also monitoring where you're going to find sources of relevant information. And so um, a kind of visual saliency map of somebody's face is going to direct you towards their eyes, for instance. When it comes to um, sort of cognitive salience, um, some work on psychopathology is really interesting that that has helped us understand the role of particular neurotransmitters, I mean, dopamine in particular, in terms of um, moderating salience and how significant things seem to you. So the suggestion is that one of the things that maybe goes wrong when people end up with delusional beliefs is that some fairly low level stimuli end up being imbued with a kind of inappropriate sense of salience. Shittage Kapoor uses the phrase aberrant salience. And on the basis of that, that kind of felt significance, you begin to kind of construct a story that would explain why something actually fairly innocuous feels so significant. So that becomes very apparent to us when it, in some sense, goes wrong and you end up with a delusional belief that can be very disruptive for you. Um, But it's something that's going on all the time for the rest of us as well as we kind of navigate our environment. So it sounds like the thought here is that certain um, patterns of salience or what you've called salient structures can be themselves um, instances of prejudice. I guess, to begin with, could you explain uh, what you mean by salient structure? Yeah. So so some of the work that I was describing just now approaches the idea of salience at, you know, a kind of quite precise domain specific level. And what I do is abstract a step away from that. And I want to say, look, your salience structure is constituted by accessibility relations between pieces of information. So um, how salient something is determines how easy it is for you to access that piece of information. But I'm taking that sort of a very 
general level that goes beyond what psychologists are talking about when they're dealing just with salience. So the idea is that how easy it is for you to get to a particular piece of information is going to be the result of a whole kind of bunch of low-level psychological processes and also facts about your environment. But the resulting structure of information um, can constitute a form of prejudice when it's systematically harder for you to access information because your salient structure is kind of built around a demographic category in some way or other. So here's an example of what I mean by that. Uh, I think we're very much encouraged to see women's bodies as highly salient features of them. But salience is always this competitive process. You can't find everything equally salient. So if something is salient to you, then something else has to be kind of deprioritized in terms of the information you're attending to. And so I think a result of this is it can be hard, you know, even for those of us with really explicit feminist beliefs to not process information about women's bodies and what they look like, even when that information isn't relevant. So the thought there is some of your information is accessible to you. Some sorry, some subset of information is accessible to you in a way that is sort of fundamentally um, disproportionate to its significance, either for practical tasks you're undertaking or for kind of broader projects of epistemic inquiry that you have. And that kind of distortion in those accessibility relations constitutes a form of prejudice. Got it. And um, roughly speaking, whose fault is this? So is it because we have these like really hard to dislodge implicit beliefs about what is more important? Or is it more like um, the world is just uh, arranged in such a way that things, certain things and features are more salient than others? Who, who, who do we blame here or what do we blame? Yeah, so it's so interesting once we get into questions about blame. Going back a step before I directly answer that question, I actually think this is why thinking about prejudice has become really complex at the moment is because previously, I think when we construe prejudice more narrowly, it is just a blameworthy state to be in. When we begin to expand it and we think about all these different forms it can take, hopefully as we begin to do a better job of listening to people who are you know, subject to prejudice, when we think about phenomena like microaggressions, the relationship with blame becomes much more complex. And I think that's part of what people find troubling in the present discourse is trying to wrap their heads around how we can recognise something as an instance of prejudice, even as it seems like the individual in question is not blameworthy. In the case of your salient structure, you can't control your salient structure directly, but you can do some stuff indirectly that's going to influence it. So, you know, you can make deliberate choices about the books that you read and the films that you watch. When we construe things in terms of accessibility relations, though, I mean, one decision I have to make in my account and just a big question that's out there is, um, should those accessibility relations just be, you know, you might say the stuff that's inside your head, which may be influenced in turn by your social environment, or should it reach right out to include facts about that social environment and the ways in which that makes some information less accessible to you? So, for instance, here are two ways in which information about books that have been written by 
female authors might be less accessible to you. One is you don't care about acquiring that information. That's kind of internal to your head. The other is your library doesn't stock those books. And if we're really just thinking of this in terms of accessibility, then um, I'm tempted to say that the, the latter too is a way for you, for the individual to end up being prejudiced. It's because you're in this social setting, which due to just sort of in some sense, physical obstacles has made this information less accessible to you. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure I have a clear answer about blame. I think blame is a really complex notion that is going to sort of sit quite awkwardly with these this kind of reconstruel of these categories of, of prejudice and bias. And then I guess, as you were saying as well, that also makes it so much harder to try and develop solutions, right? Or, or to try to improve either ourselves or the decision-making process uh, as, as a whole to, to be le less prejudiced? Yeah, I think that can feel like a very overwhelming question to people. And that's one of the reasons maybe why it can be hard to engage with this stuff is it can, you know, you can end up feeling powerless and confused as to what you're really meant to do in the face of it. Um, yeah, and I think sometimes all we can do is kind of is, is, is sit with that difficulty and then begin to think about, you know, small steps that you take from that. One question I had is, um, what's the upshot of all this as it relates to like epistemology as it's done in uh, academic philosophy? So does this mean that there's something big that um, at least like traditional epistemology is just totally missing? Yeah. OK, good. So, so I'm making this claim. Look, but one way, one form that prejudice can take is how you've organised the information or how accessible information is to you. Then there's this other question, which is like, well, um, is prejudice an inherently epistemically valence category? So when we identify somebody as prejudiced, does that mean that there is an epistemic flaw there? If it does, what is the epistemic flaw in this case? Because I've said you don't need to have irrational beliefs. You don't need to have false beliefs. Obviously, there's all sorts of ways in which this kind of skewing of accessibility relations is likely to give rise to those things. But is there anything more that we can say about that? So I think I have an open mind still on this question of whether there are forms of prejudice which are entirely epistemically innocent. But I don't think this is an epistemically innocent form of prejudice. But if we're going to find what's wrong with it, then we need to draw on sort of tools in epistemology that go beyond just thinking about, you know, is this inference from A to B a good inference? Or is this a reliable process by which you've acquired this belief? Because I'm saying, look, you can idealise your situation such that there is no particular problem of that nature with these beliefs. It's then what the individual is doing with them or the way in which they're kind of structured and ordered. And, and so I think it is a slight... It's a, it's a challenge in a good way for epistemology to think more about how we evaluate those processes. And epistemology is stepping up, I think. So there's a bunch of really interesting work recently on um, on how we should go about gathering evidence and norms for attention, which is really, really relevant here of, um, you know, what things should you attend to in your environment? And what things should you not attend to in your environment? Um, one claim that I want to make is that there's this epistemic virtue that we maybe haven't paid enough attention to, which I call kind of cognitive flexibility. So epistemology can be very oriented towards accuracy or truth. And I, I think it's really, you know, that, that's appropriate. But we can evaluate that at different levels. So one thing we might care about is take an individual belief and we can ask, is that belief accurate? Um, great, if it is, that, that's one step towards sort of having having knowledge. Process reliabilism asks that about a process it says to what extent does this process give rise to true beliefs I and mean, if that ratio is high enough then maybe one of those individual beliefs that it gives rise to counts as 
is justified. Great. We can also go up a level again, and some forms of reliabilism kind of move towards doing this kind of more forms of global reliabilism, where you don't just care about whether a given belief or a given process gives rise to true beliefs, but instead you care about whether an agent is able to form beliefs in a wide range of contexts whilst pursuing a wide range of different inquiries. Part of the problem with a prejudicial salient structure is it might actually work really well for you if you're only concerned to form one particular type of belief or belief about a particular topic, but it's going to screw you over when you come to form beliefs outside of that. Now, maybe you never will. Maybe you're never going to want to form beliefs about anything apart from what women's bodies look like. But I still think that as epistemologists, we care about your ability to do that, even if you never employ it. And that part of what goes wrong with prejudicial salient structures is that they really inhibit your cognitive flexibility in that way. So can I just kind of say that back to make sure I'm not missing anything? Um, Reliabilists want to emphasise the process by which we end up with beliefs. So it's not just um, assessing each belief as it pops out of our heads and asking whether it's true or false, but also asking um, whether the route we took to arrive at that belief um, is the kind of route that would reliably and robustly end up with true beliefs. And um, when we're thinking about cognitive flexibility here, um, I guess the thought is that some processes are actually really good at at spitting out true beliefs in certain narrow contexts, but we might also care about processes that are applicable across a really wide range of contexts. And one way in which um, salient structures can be prejudicial in this sense is that they um, reinforce or generate uh, processes which are only very narrowly reliable when it comes to generating accurate beliefs. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So I hesitate to make any generalizations about reliabilism because it comes in a lot of different forms with a lot of different nuance. But yeah, you could think of it as in traditionally, at least, reliabilism has been focused on a process and you know the beliefs that it outputs but another thing we care about is maybe the the subject more broadly now your salient structure is going to underwrite a whole load of sort of cognitive processes that you apply to arrive at true beliefs Um, and so part of what this involves is this kind of shift again I mean this this comes back to the idea of modal generality in some ways we're like shifting to a greater degree of generality and asking how you're going to fare in a load of counterfactual situations as an epistemic agent So uh, this is all super interesting, but so far we've always thought about this in the terms of people having prejudice or people being the decision maker or having these cognitive processes. But you've also written about what this might apply for search engines, if you could maybe elaborate about this. Yeah, so this is very much a work in progress at the moment, but I'm really interested to think about the ways in which search engines order information. So I guess once I had this question in mind, which was like, what is the epistemic significance of how we order information what else orders information well search engines do it you type in a query and what you get back is a whole load of information that is ordered for you in terms of relevance to your query there's a lot of interesting stuff being written at the moment about the nature of algorithmic bias and the ways in which um, algorithms can have kind of problematic 
upshots in terms of their interaction with particular demographic categories. Some of that work is is on search engines. So Sophia Noble has this book, Algorithms of Oppression, and she starts from an example, which I think is really powerful. Where this was several years ago, she was Googling to try to find information that was relevant to her teenage nieces who are black. And so she Googled black girls. And what she got back was a set of highly sexualized search results um, that was not at all the information that she was looking for. And so the question I'm interested in is what's gone wrong in that process? So one thing you might have gone very simply has gone wrong is, well, that's not the information she wants. Those aren't the search results that are maximally relevant for her. And I, I think that's you know, to some extent a helpful thing to be able to say. But I definitely don't think it's the end of the story, because actually, I think even if somebody is looking for exactly that set of search results, that should not be what they get back if they type in black girls. So I have the sense that we have some kind of user independent, more objective standard that we're evaluating search engines relative to, um, or at least that we can perform that evaluation relative to. And then part of what I'm trying to interrogate or dig into is what is that standard? What do we want from a good search engine? Uh, Obvious question. What is that standard? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't think I have a full answer yet, but I do think I'm beginning to sound like I'm kind of, you know, I've got my hammer and I'm seeing a lot of nails around the place. Um, But I do think cognitive flexibility comes into it again. So I guess that um, if you have a user who is getting back exactly what they want when they type in black girls, that's really going to limit their ability to engage in certain other kinds of project or inquiry. It's going to limit their ability to um, see the people around them in certain ways. And that has a whole bunch of upshots. And I'm focused on the epistemology, but I don't want that to seem like I'm then kind of underplaying the moral and practical significance of this stuff as as well. I think, again, though, this this really comes back it's to the idea of an unstable subfloor. So because this subfloor of demographic categories is so radically unstable, technology cannot lie smoothly on top of it and that just be the end of the story because the subfloor is always going to be responding to what's on top of it. There's always going to be this kind of dynamic interaction between the two of them. So how we use terms... um, that describe people's race or gender or sexuality is partly influenced by the ways in which we're engaging all the time with search engines. Um, And so you have this kind of complex two-way process by which our cognitive abilities are naturally adapting all the time to the algorithms that we're increasingly sort of relying on to access really basic goods and services. Um, And so I think that um, I hope that the notion of cognitive flexibility has some resources to identify a whole range of ways in which that interaction between the two needs to work to be a healthy interaction. And that doesn't kind of problematically kind of lock us into thinking about these categories in particular ways. And does this have anything to do with um, like echo chambers? I guess one thing you could say is, well, look, here's, here's one way to deliver um, search results uh, that people more reliably want, right? And that is just get people to be interested in a much narrower range of results than they initially were, and then deliver that narrower range. Um, so you get this kind of feedback process where the more you pigeonhole people into certain categories, the more they respond and find more salient um, certain like narrow kinds of, of results. 
Um, does that map on to this thought about cognitive flexibility? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and um, that kind of feedback mechanism is what I was trying to get at partly with talking about things in terms of subfloors, which I must sound obsessed with. Um, yeah, so, so echo chambers are maybe a particular form of this where you can kind of build your environment on the internet. We could think of it as a kind of informational environment so that you kind of know what information you're going to get back and that feels comfortable and good. And you might even think that you're allowing yourself to form more true beliefs through doing that because maybe you trust these particular um, sources of information more than others. But in doing that, if you're kind of limiting yourself in certain ways to the kinds of topics that those things deal with or the, the sorts of results that they give you, um, yeah, then in other ways, you're going to be much less cognitive flexibility, cognitively flexible. I think search engines kind of take that bigger in a way because um, you use them to access such a range of things. Do, do you know if this is even on the radar um, of search engines at the moment? Like if even in very like preliminary terms, like this is something Google is thinking about? Because I know they are interested on this, like from a politics and probably from a regulation side, but not necessarily from this uh, epistemology uh, aspect that, that you were mentioning. I, I think it I think it is on their radar. I mean, I don't think anybody in tech is going to be sort of use, using the terms that philosophers are, are like me are applying to this. Um, but one thing that's really interesting is the ways in which Google has changed what happens when you type in certain search results. And that that also has a bunch. Of, and this is definitely moving away from the epistemic to stuff that's more political. But I think that has really interesting upshots that philosophers need to think about as well. So it used to be the case that if you typed in some search inquiries to do with terms like Jew, you got back horribly anti-Semitic results. Now, people objected to this. And for a while, Google added a little sort of disclaimer that said, are you disturbed by these results? So are we. But, you know, this is how the search engine works, pretty much. People continued to object to that. And then I think also there were some changes in legislation in the EU. And then that meant that now if you type in if you, some search inquiries that use the term Jew, you get back what you previously got back if you use Jewish instead. And so you don't see the same anti-Semitic results. Now, I think it's really complex to know if that's a, an improvement or not. I think it is an improvement in many ways, but you might have this unease about it, which is this. If you're a Jewish person or if you're a black woman and you live in a society where um, if you straightforwardly typed in those search inquiries, you would get back that set of results. That's something that you might want to know, that you might want to be able to actively engage with and sort of act on the basis of. And I mean, not just if you're a member of those groups, it's relevant information for all of us. And so it's interesting once you have a search engine that is in some sense deliberately obscuring information and I think um, cognitive flexibility is interesting because there are ways in which it might be furthered by obscuring some information. But we have to think really, really carefully about when that's something that we want to do. So we ask uh, all our guests uh, two questions. The first one of which is, what is a significant thing that you've recently changed your mind about and why? It's actually a really big thing that I've recently changed my mind about, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it. I'm quite glad this is coming at the end of the podcast because hopefully not many people are listening this far. <laughs> I mean, hopefully so they I are. With... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, hopefully. So I do all this work on philosophy of perception, and I guess it's like a sort of fundamental divide in philosophy of perception between people who are direct realists who think that sort of when you perceive something in your environment, you have this kind of direct relationship to your environment, such that you know some people put it in terms of objects in your environment directly featuring in your experience itself. And representationalists who are like, no, you have a representation, a contentful representation, a little bit akin to a belief, but it's just visual. I used to be really diehard representationalist. Direct realism just seemed kind of silly to me. And I've shifted recently to thinking that there are really big problems with representationalism. And I'm not a direct realist. I'm definitely not. But I think I understand now some of the motivation behind it much better than I previously did. And the things which have changed my mind are reading debates about the format of visual representation, which sometimes feel to me like they end up being uncomfortably homuncular. So representations have a format, which means that sort of they can only engage with certain kinds of reader or a reader of them can do certain things with them. So the reason I sometimes feel uncomfortable with the debate around what the format of visual perception is, is it can end up feeling like your visual experience has a reader, like it has some thing that is engaging with that format in the same way that, you know, your computer engages with the format of a JPEG and can do some things with it and can't do other things with it. Um, I think at some point, I think we have to be really careful about how homuncular that becomes. And representationalism really needs to make sure that it's compatible with a view on which at some point you get to just get on and experience the world without that involving a kind of reader in between you and your visual experience um, and I also have some worries about sort of time and how visual experience unfolds over time that I think it's really hard to reconcile with representationalism successfully so that's like a big thing for me that is really in flux at the moment uh, and then just to to finish it off what are three books or articles uh, that you would recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about all the things that we've talked about um, gosh, I could rec- I could recommend a lot. I think um, the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning to do with projectability, it's not directly on projectability at all. But I do think that Khalil Muhammad's book, The Condemnation of Blackness, is just really interesting for understanding some of the ways in which um, sort of statistical reasoning and racism can go together and have gone together in an American context. Um, for some of the stuff we've been talking about more recently about search engines, I do think that um, Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology, which I've just finished reading with a reading group, is, is really stimulating and thought provoking on this stuff and presents a load of really interesting case studies and examples that kind of get you thinking. And in terms of the interaction between philosophy of perception and some of these other questions I'm interested in with bias, um, I think Susanna Siegel's book, The Rationality of Perception, is a really interesting kind of different take on the epistemology of perception and she also has some really interesting things to say about how we select information and how we attend that i think are going to be really important topics in the future jesse munton thank you very much that was jesse munton on prejudice perception and projectability as always if you want to learn more you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash jesse There you'll find links to the articles we base this conversation on, as well as further reading. If you found this episode especially interesting, you might also want to check out uh, episode 6 with Dan Williams, where we talk about the signalling role of beliefs. Uh, As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. 
If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form, or you can just send us an email at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening.